0: There's a lot of stuff that still just isn't exposed, like a lot of capability that the underlying technology has that just isn't exposed in the UI, partly due to resource constraints and partly due to the complexity of exposing functionality in a UI. One of our goals is always simplicity and intuitiveness. In some cases, making things an option is like a cop-out. Our MVP, we didn't have billing implemented. We had a free trial period. So we figured, hey, we don't we don't need billing in, implemented to launch because we have a 30-day free trial period, so we can just launch and we'll just get billing done before 30 days is up. We'll be good. My name is Mike Malone and I'm the founder and CEO at Small Step.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today help Mike Malone created a platform to automate your certificates and make security easy for all developers. All this and more on Code Story. Mike Malone is a nerd from way back his words, not mine. In the sixth grade, he bought a Borland C book and learned how to code. Back when Napster was around, he hosted an open NAP server in his basement and ran a few things on IRC. He graduated from Virginia Tech with a business information systems degree and worked for Accenture for a hot second, then joined a three-person startup and hasn't looked back since. He's married with two kids and a dog, and he claims he collects hobbies, which is another way of saying he likes to try new things. Mike's career has tracked alongside the development of the cloud. He witnessed the security problems alongside distributed systems and felt the pains of having to manage sensitive information. This is the creation story of SmallStep.
0: SmallStep solves security problems for large distributed systems. We we position ourselves as production identity for DevOps and cloud-native infrastructure. More concretely though, um, our core technology does certificate management. This is a, a corner inside of a corner of software and computer science, but it's a really important one, increasingly important as security and cybersecurity, software security increases in importance. So certificates are a variety of credential, like a password, but very much unlike a password that have characteristics that make them really amenable to large-scale distributed system security. You know, as the software ecosystem evolves, DevOps, cloud native, microservices, containerization, the trend is more stuff changing more frequently. You know, there's a pace and scale issue that has necessitated a lot of change. And in this certificate management space, like a lot of other spaces, the new requirements are all around addressing that pace and scale with automation, operability tools, audit visibility, so that's what we do. We help large organizations and small, mid-sized businesses manage certificates for their internal infrastructure. My career has sort of tracked alongside cloud stuff and microservices and you know, all of these things before we had names for them, before they were cool and had a billion-dollar marketing budget behind them, which was, you know, luck, right? Like, it, you know, I had, it just happened to be how it worked out. I've grown up alongside of these new technologies and new techniques and sort of witnessed the, the security problems. I'm not a security guy, right? Like I, I'd say I'm a distributed systems guy. Like distributed systems are distributed systems architecture is like my happy place. I like building large scale systems. My immediate last gig, I was CTO at this company called Betable. It was a platform for online gambling. We used to joke that we were regulated like a bank that sold liquor. We had customer funds, right? We were moving a lot of money around, but it's also a vice industry. So there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny and a lot of real security sensitive stuff that we were managing. And I saw that there was a real gap in security infrastructure for folks who were adopting these new techniques, using these new technologies. That was the origin story. And we, we actually started out with an authorization product. We started out, we built a programming language, which is crazy. If it's not clear yet, that we're a, d- deeply, a deeply technical team. We wrote a programming language from, you know, first principles, and it was solving for confinement and termination, right? Like we wanted to make sure that this these little programs that you're writing didn't run you know, in an infinite loop, they they terminated, and that they didn't do, you know, write to disk or read from disk or make network calls inappropriately. Those aren't things that are typically solved by normal programming languages, but this is a programming language that was meant as a policy authorization language that could run embedded in, say, like microservices at the, at the edge of a microservice to enforce organizational policies on service-to-service interactions. So we started bringing that to market and you know there are a few issues with it. One was the unit of value is too big. We were breaking their brains with like, adopt this new language, everyone learn it, and then implement it everywhere, and then you get you know some benefit on the other side of that. But the more concrete response we got was cool authorization product, but we don't have authentication yet. In other words, like you have this thing that, you know, service A makes a call to service B and service B runs some authorization policy to see whether that call should be processed. But in our infrastructure, service B doesn't know that the caller is service A. There is no authentication layer that's consistent throughout our infrastructure. So any policy on top of that inter-service communication is sort of useless because we don't know who's making the call. So go solve authentication for us. Then maybe we'll buy your authorization product. So that's how we got into certificate management.
1: Tell me about the MVP then. So, you know, how long did it take you to build that first product you built? How long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life?
0: Well, it depends on where you start counting. We're open core. So our, our core technology is open source. And we started by building that open source community and releasing an open source project, not a product, which is a little bit unusual, I'd say, in in startup land. Usually an open core company is founded around an open source project that already exists that is maybe spun out of another company or something. So we built this from scratch and built the community from scratch. So that was... And a few years ago now, like two or three years ago, that we released the first open source version. And the open source MVP, I'd say, didn't take too terribly long. I'd say we, less than a quarter, I'd say, we spent from start to finish on just getting something out there as an open source project. But, the you know, the barrier is pretty low on open sourcing a, a Git repo. It wasn't until about a year ago, a little over a year ago, that we really started thinking about commercializing that open source project. The commercial MVP, that took, I'd say, three to six months to go from, hey, we have this project and we want a hosted product-led SaaS version of it to actually having that delivered in, you know, a sign-up flow and MVP of that on the website. Tons of technologies involved there. I mean, we're a Golang shop. We use some node for front-end stuff, React, I believe. Lots of Golang, though. Golang's a a great programming environment and great language.
1: Let's stay on the MVP for a minute then. So, and, and specifically the commercial MVP. So when you're building that, you gotta make certain decisions and trade-offs around, you know, you know, uh, language selection. Like you mentioned a handful of, of, of languages you're using or, you know, feature cut or tech debt acceptance, all that stuff, all the things we all know and love. But tell me about some of your decisions and trade-offs you had to make in a little more detail and, and how you coped with those decisions.
0: Oh man, it's hard to even pick a handful. There are so many. There's a lot of stuff that still just isn't exposed, like a lot of capability that our under, the underlying technology has that just isn't exposed in the UI. Partly due to resource constraints and partly due to the complexity of exposing functionality in a UI. And one of our goals is always simplicity and intuitiveness. In some cases, making things an option is like a cop-out. Our MVP, we didn't have billing implemented. We had a free trial period, so we figured, hey, we don't we don't need billing and implemented to launch because we have a 30 day free trial period. So we can just launch and we'll just get billing done before 30 days is up. We'll be good. If you're not embarrassed by your MVP, you waited too long to launch. And certainly we were embarrassed by our MVP. (laughs) How do I cope with that? It is what it is. You know, I've been in the startup game long enough to understand what it looks like. Uh, You need to get something out there in front of customers, in front of users. You need to start getting that feedback as soon as possible. And ultimately, they understand and appreciate that as well. That's how you grow a product that is actually valuable. It doesn't bother me too much.
1: From that point, you've got your commercial MVP done. How did you progress and mature the product? And I think to wrap that question in a box, what I'm looking for is how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, OK, this is the next most important thing to build.
0: That's very hard. I think if you're an expert at that, you can make a lot of money. The best way in my experience to develop roadmap is to experience a pain yourself, intimately understand some painful process or some sharp edge in in a workflow or something like that that you can improve upon the second best way is to listen to other people who may be experiencing those pains so that's what we do to develop our roadmap is you know, try to dog food adopt technologies that maybe our customers are using so we can you know experience the pains that they're experiencing and really relate or at least just talk to folks read and try to understand and empathize with the pain that they're experiencing because those painkillers are really you know what drive value. Let's switch
1: to team then. So how'd you go about building your team? And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you?
0: Team is the most important thing. A company is its people. I have a really sort of high-level, broad hiring strategy. I kind of have two tests. The biggest one is, is this person smart? And are they Passionate. Drilling in on that second point a little bit, are, are the things that they're passionate about, you know, in the Venn diagram of things that are important to the business and things that this individual is passionate about, is there overlap? Are they passionate about the things that they're going to have to do it? And that's just, it's alignment, right? I've found that if you have those two things, everything else works itself out. So for example, it matters less to me that somebody has experience with a programming language that we use than it does that they have desire to work with that programming language and they have the capacity, you know, the intelligence to learn it. If those two things are there, then the level of experience matters a lot less. That's what's gonna make somebody sort of objectively good in a role. Then the the other thing I look for is sort of the culture fit dimension. The way I summarize that is just a gut check on if this person is working for the company. Come Monday, am I going to be more or less excited to go to work? Those are really the two big things that I look for. You know, it's pretty nebulous, but I really truly believe that's what's important.
1: I'm curious about you know starting out open core and having that you know open source aspect did that did that help your recruiting at all did that help you kind of establish a community and then therefore be able to pick from team wise did that integrate at all
0: it has absolutely helped with recruiting there are a lot of pros and cons with open source but recruiting particularly for technical folks for software engineers, and dev advocates, folks who can connect with the developer and DevOps, DevSecOps audience. Being open source is a huge advantage. So we have hired, we've recruited and hired from our community we also have a number of engineers who I think count the open source aspect, you know, being able to work on an open source project and contribute to an open source community as a benefit, sort of a perk of working at small step, both because they feel like it's sort of a moral good and because their work gets some, a portion of their work anyways is done in the public, which is great for their careers.
1: Let's flip to scalability. This will be interesting with the, um, you know, the open core, and then you know, also the problems that you're solving, and the combination of your story so far. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask it generically. Did, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow?
0: Yes, we built it to scale efficiently, and yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. I am a distributed systems guy, but also as CEO, I have to put my sort of like pragmatic business value hat on, maybe more often than I'd prefer. You know, sometimes one of the compromises you make is around You know, to get to market faster, maybe you build something that you know isn't going to support a million users or a million requests per second. But I think one of the big advantages that we have is with my background as a distributed systems guy and the team also has, you know, a a lot of uh, experience and competence around building large scale distributed systems we've been successful for the most part in at least architecting if not implementing for scale which i think is the more important piece of it you know it's less existential to have an implementation that can't support like potential hypothetical fulls full-scale operations than it is to have an api or an interface or a feature that just will not inherently will not scale so i think we've been pretty good about avoiding the latter. We have certainly implemented things in knowing that they won't scale and then had to go back and iterate on that implementation to improve scalability.
1: Well, Mike, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: Well, first, the team. I think there's a group of people at the company that I just really enjoy working with. Second, just the core technology that we've built. We had a thesis that we've now proven out that there's a need for this security infrastructure, an unmet need for the certificate management infrastructure as people implement, you know, I hate to use the phrase zero trust, but it's a good enough way of sort of putting what we're doing in a box we're seeing people adopt and use that in really big ways, which feels good. You know, we've built something that is actually valuable, that is solving real problems at scale for um, a lot of folks.
1: Let's flip the script a little bit, Mike. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: This is a hard one for me, honestly. I almost don't think in terms of mistakes i'm more of a happy accidents kind of guy um i think as long as you learn learn from something like was it really a mistake say there are some decisions that we made that are still unfolding and in retrospect we may consider mistakes we're we're using kubernetes and have a a very service-oriented architecture that's been problematic as we've tried to deploy on-premise. It's just it complicates on-prem deploys, running a microservice architecture that has a Kubernetes dependency. So there have been challenges like that. Maybe one thing looking back, our our first iteration of our technology we wrote in Haskell, that was a mistake. (laughs) From (laughs) any sort of pragmatic uh, uh, perspective, that was a mistake. I can't pinpoint something that I would really call a major mistake. I don't know if that's just my own blind spots or just that I don't like to think that way. That's the thing I always loved about venture too, by the way, venture capital and venture back startups is this appetite for risk and, you know, embracing failure as long as you learn and make progress.
1: So what does the future look like for Small step the product, and for your team?
0: We're experiencing a lot of growth, a lot of growing interest and usage with our product. I think the architectural philosophies that we're catering to and addressing, they're still proliferating really excited about that. And then there's a lot of new innovative stuff going on in the ecosystem. Apple just announced a new zero-touch secure enrollment technology that's an implementation of an open standard called Acme Device Attestation that is replacing an older school, really insecure, crappy protocol called SCEP, S-C-E-P that enrolls You know iphones and laptops in enterprise it environments so that's a new and interesting opportunity for us where the as far as i know we're the only solution there we're the only ones who have implemented acme device attestation on the server side so we're seeing a lot of interest there and a, a lot of opportunity there but ultimately you know we want to build valuable technology and sell it to people that can build even more valuable things with it so I think beyond the certificate management business there are tons of adjacencies there we'd love to get back to our authorization technology you know, brush the dust off of those repos and and get those fully productized yeah we, we want to build a big valuable important business in the in the enterprise i.t space
1: let's switch to you Mike who influences the way that you work you know name someone or many someone's or something you look up to and why
0: my dad is probably my biggest influence. He was a forensic engineer when I was growing up. He he actually was born in Yuba City, California, in you know a one room house that literally had like a, a dirt floor, and made his way to UC Berkeley, and then full scholarship got his PhD at MIT. So super super smart guy. The company name is actually a little bit of a. Homage or, or um, connection back to my dad because he he worked on the Apollo program. He he did some work on the lunar lander landing gear. So the you know the small step name is uh, obviously a tie into you know one small step for mankind. So he was a big influence, you know, really smart, really good person, and encouraged, like, nurtured my software engineering sort of passion and entrepreneurship and, you know, provided a lot of really good insights there. He was entrepreneurial himself, as well as being an engineer. I had a really good mentor growing up that helped me a lot.
1: Okay, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning. What would you do different, or where would you consider taking a different approach? Maybe the the happy accidents are still apply here, but I'm curious what you're going to say.
0: Look, if I had a silver ball, there are probably some things that we wasted time on, or didn't do quickly enough, or over engineered, or what have you, that I would do differently. But I'd say a largely. I I focus a lot on regret minimization so I don't have a ton of regrets. You know I focus my energy on irreversible decisions and try not to spend too much time on reversible decisions and then try not to be too broken up if I have to reverse them. For my own mental health it would have been nice if I had a co-founder. It's a maybe a big macro decision there. Overall you know I feel like I can't complain. I, I get to do what I love every day and make a decent living off of it. So I don't think I have any, any, you know, I'm happy about what we've built. Well, Mike,
1: last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't we show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: I think there's a, lo- a long list of advice I might give somebody like that. I mean, first of all, I would, I would be excited for them. If they're passionate and they're, you know, this is what they want to do, I would encourage that. You know, I'd encourage them to not listen to the haters and pursue that passion. I do think you, you, you need to really want it though. Running a business, it's a roller coaster. It's an emotional roller coaster. There are ups and downs and highs and lows that are very extreme. Not just quarter to quarter, but you know, sometimes minute to minute and, and that's a lot. People say uh, or or assume that if you're CEO, you don't have a boss, and that's definitely not the case. I, I I, I think it's more like you have 100 bosses, you know, you have 100 people who have a valid reason to demand your time and attention at any given moment, whether it's because they gave you a bunch of money and need some response to some inquiry that they need to report up to, you know, their stakeholders or their LPs or whatever. Or it's somebody who works for you who didn't get reimbursed for expenses and is freaking out, right? Like people say, don't bring your laptop on vacation. Well, like, I can't not bring my laptop on vacation because if somebody needs to be paid and hasn't been, I need to handle that. Like that's thats non-negotiable. So it's a lot of responsibility. Be careful what you wish for sometimes, you know, make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into.
1: Oh, that's, that's fantastic advice. Well, Mike, thank you for being on the show today and telling the creation story of Small Step.
0: Thanks, Noah. It was fun.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously.